Welcome to Wildlife Matters, a podcast from Dorset Wildlife Trust. Join us as we share news, articles and conversations exploring all the work we do to protect wildlife and wild spaces here in our beautiful county of Dorset. In today's episode, we've invited Chief Executive Brian Blees to talk to us about Wild Woodbury, our pioneering rewilding project. We'll also get an insight into the community projects that are happening there as we join the team for a community event on site in Beer Regis. But first, let's join Hazel from the Wildlife Matters team as she talks with Brian about the Trust's vision for Wild Woodbury. So it's great to have this opportunity um, to sit down with you, Brian, at, at Brooklands. Um, one of the first things we wanted to talk about was uh, was Wild Woodbury. Um, I think it's just over a year since we acquired it. Um, and I'd really like to know why we bought Wild Woodbury and what were you hoping to achieve? Well, Wild Woodbury was a, a fantastic opportunity to acquire quite a large area of land for nature, essentially. And uh, more and more, I'm seeing our, our kind of our mission as making space for nature. I think the more space we can make for nature, the more nature can contribute to uh, addressing climate change, to addressing the ecological crisis, and to enabling people to benefit from contact with nature. So while Woodbury at 170 hectares was a big chunk of land, and that areas of that size don't come along that often, it, and what was different this time was that it's intensely, it was intensively farmed agricultural land. So it was also an opportunity to take some land out of intensive agriculture, which also benefited um, the flow of nitrates into the, into the local river system and into Pool Harbour. So that was the primary reason that we were able to obtain the funding to buy it. Um, but from our point of view, that, 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 the additional opportunity to create more space for wildlife was, was really top of the list. And land that wasn't designated as a triple SI or anything already. So it really was a great opportunity to, as I said, to stop the intensive farming and to start looking at how we could shape it as a landscape for the future, a space for nature for the future. So, yeah, opportunities on lots of levels. Mm, yeah. the, two, the two big ones, of course, are nitrates and, and space for nature. Yeah. So that's very different to the normal land acquisition of a nature reserve, say, where, where it's already a special place for, for wildlife and nature. Indeed. And often we've acquired land over the years um, because we were saving it. Yeah. You know, important sites that needed to be better managed, needed to be... Uh, you know, bought into positive management for wildlife, but were in some way special already. And uh, while Woodbury certainly was not special, it has great potential and still has great potential, of course. But it, it wasn't. It wasn't. You wouldn't see it as a special wildlife site. So we had a bit of a um, free reign almost as to what we could do. Because if you acquire land that's a triple SI, it's got very specific reasons and specific ways you have to manage it. But with Wild Woodbury it meant we could think differently, think out of the box a little bit, and maybe you know, give nature a bit more of an opportunity to steer where we go. So we are, we're, we're looking at it as a rewilding opportunity, or a wilding opportunity, yeah. um, which doesn't have a specific definition, really. There are a number of definitions around. But to me, it's about letting nature lead you. And it doesn't mean we abandon the land. It doesn't mean not doing anything. Mm. It means following nature's lead and giving it a helping hand. 
And so we, we, it's, a, it's a long-term plan. We need to take a long-term view at Wild Woodbury. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, but thinking what it might become for the future has been very much what it's all about. Because a lot of our management is about retaining and maintaining and, and yeah, restoring important sites from the that were from the past man-made habitats mm, mm-hmm. um but with this it didn't have any uh, any kind of history as a wildlife site so it meant that we could we could be a bit more liberal in how we how we yeah. manage it yeah. which has been great and what it also gives us is you know biodiversity is very important but so is bioabundance and while we're we're losing abundance of species as well as as, as species globally and locally of course it's not immune to the global ecological crisis and there, there are some shocking statistics out there about decline in, in species numbers and species in dorset you know for instance we've lost about 25 percent of our bee species in dorset out of 80 or so species we've lost 25 are no longer present in dorset which is horrendous but we're also seeing huge declines in numbers of species so while biodiversity is, is very, very important, biodiversity can mean a few of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, for, for bioabundance, we need space. And bioabundance is so important to give nature and, and wildlife and species opportunities to develop, to adapt, to, to move, especially in the life changing climate where nature needs space. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. So, I mean, it's quite a, a big parcel of land. How, how did the trust afford that? How did, how did you go about acquiring that land? Indeed. Well, it came on the market rather unexpectedly a few years ago. And, and we, we looked at it the first time it came on the market and where it was sold as part of a wider block that was way out of our reach. Um, the landowner then decided to break it up into smaller lots. And then and we had another look and it, was, it, it seemed a bit more achievable, some of the smaller blocks. Uh, we're also very fortunate to have a, a, a supporter of ours, Julia Davis, that was willing to, to help with that financially and, and to help in, in developing our plans and ideas around it so that we could look for further funding. And um, Julia has a system where she offers um, patient loans to conservation organisations to acquire land and then get the money back, raise the funds and pay it back. Oh, okay. We didn't ever need to take out the the patient loan with Julia, fortunately, because the, the funding happened quite quickly. And the bulk of the funding came from um, local authorities, from Dorset Council and uh, uh, Bournemouth Bursuch and Pool Council, uh, as part of their um, mitigation plans for development in the area, they collect money from developers. And they have a duty to offset nitrates flowing into the system. So a big chunk of the money came from that source. Mm. Um, and we also put quite a bit of our own money in from uh, from a legacy that we received from one of our founders, Helen Brotherson, who oh, left us right. some money for, for land management and land purchase. So we were able to make up the difference from that, which was great. Um, but both of the councils are very excited about the prospect of not just meeting their nitrate um, mitigation obligations, but also about being part of creating something wonderful for people and wonderful for nature. That's fantastic. I mean, that kind of support is, is just so inspiring, really. It is. And, and to, you know, the support from the councils has been very encouraging that they, they've taken this very seriously and committed to working with us on this and trusting us to deliver, which is, which is excellent as well. We've got a long track record of, of, of looking after land, of course, but approaching it in this way, this rewilding approach, 
it's, it's slightly different and um and their support has been vital we couldn't have done it without their support of course that's great so so you acquired the land um i think it was farmed right up until the moment that that, that we that you acquired it um what 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 were the first steps what, what's been happening over that first year well the, the land was intensively managed for agriculture um which meant there were lots of pesticides and nitrates put onto the land in an effort to to make it more productive mm. And of the 170 hectares, about 150 hectares of that were was producing uh, food for cattle. Um, about 11 hectares of permanent pasture, where a few cattle were raised each year. But an awful lot of land dedicated to growing food for cows, you know, to produce meat. So it's a, a little bit of an imbalance in in our food production system. I think that we we need to have some of those conversations nationally. Um, about uh, about how our food's produced and how much resource goes into producing meat, and um, I mean I'm not an advocate of everybody being a vegetarian. You know I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian myself, but thinking about how our meat is produced, where it comes from, and what resources it takes to produce meat, and uh, is something we do need to have a think about, in my view. So in the past year, um, or year and a half now actually since we acquired it. It's uh, the first thing we did was was take stock a little bit, have a look at what's there. Um, we did have farming happened right up until um, actually a few months after we we acquired it because of the termination of leases and those sorts of things. Um, so initially we started doing a lot of uh, surveys, find out what's there, what's what are the opportunities there, and uh, one of the big things we wanted to look at uh, was um, the feasibility of uh, of creating wetlands on the site because the land all of the land pretty much was very very heavily drained I mean there are very deep drains all over sections of it you know three meter deep drains in an effort because it's naturally quite a wet area right but this drain these drains were obviously taking the water away as quickly as possible to try and improve it as as um, as productive farmland so the first thing one of the first things we did was a hydrological study of the site to see what those opportunities were. Where would the water go? I mean, it's right alongside the A35, so we didn't want to create a wetland and flood the A35 every year, which wouldn't have made us very popular, of course. No. So we did have to do a really kind of in-depth study as to what the opportunities there were for, for creating wetlands. And now we're, we're seeing some of that come to fruition. So we have done some of the work on the ground to, um, to block some of the drains up, to, you know, reduce, to create flows for the water to start to come back into the land. And wetlands are wonderful places for wildlife, of course, and very quickly attract wildlife. They attract birds, which are wetland birds, uh, invertebrates, and this is bioabundance happening, and we'll start to see that influx of, of all sorts of things in, in, in big numbers, I think, quite quickly. Right, so the water makes that difference, that, that's what attracts them. Absolutely. Life needs water, and, and many species are entirely dependent on, on, a, on a, a wetland habitat. And I think we'll we'll rapidly see things like dragonflies and and other wetland invertebrates start to start to uh, prosper in numbers there. That's fantastic, and that's going to be very exciting to to see what difference that that river restoration project you know makes over over the next few years. Indeed, restoring wetland is is something that can really change the the, the nature of the land, and we're starting to see it already in in in, in, in little ways locally. But I think three or four years down the line we'll see a massive difference. And uh, we've had some quite heavy rains recently, which have started to wet some of the land. Um, and yeah, it's looking very promising. 
So um, it's been billed as a, a community rewilding project. What, what does that actually mean and, and how have the local community been involved? Well, in addition to our strategic targets of trying to enable 30% of land and sea to be managed for nature by 2030, um, we also have a target of enabling one in four people to be part of nature, to be supporting nature and acting for nature. So all of our nature reserves are, are open access and we're very keen that people you know, use them as green space, in appropriate use of course, and, um, and are part of um, looking after our nature reserves, caring for them locally and benefiting from them because um, contact with nature is very good for physical and mental well-being. And uh, there's more and more evidence for that, that people that live in environments that are rich in wildlife, you know, have lots of green space, live very healthy or healthier, more prosperous lives, which is, which is fantastic. So linking the community with Wild Woodbury was, was, was uh, something we set out to do right from the start. Um, we need, obviously, getting community support for this project is, was absolutely vital. And enabling people to be part of that planning for the future, creating a landscape for the future was so vital. And in so doing, making sure they have access to it. Yeah. So access is a big part of what, we, what we're trying to do there as well, and making sure people can enjoy the site. And, um, and hopefully we establish something for the, for the future that their children and grandchildren can continue to enjoy. Um, but they're getting involved through volunteering, through learning activities and linking up with the local schools. And, uh, and just enjoying the site, being able to access the site. And very soon we will be uh, implementing a whole range of new access facilities there and opportunities, uh, opening up parts of it so people can walk their dogs, can oh, okay. take their children for a picnic. You know, all sorts of things you can do in the landscape that enable, you know, more regular contact with nature. Yeah, because it is right on the doorstep. I mean, it's almost part of the village, isn't it? So um, I think that's great that, that, that people in the village can, can be so involved and from a wider area, obviously. Indeed, and uh, it's in a very strategic place in Dorset, both from a nature conservation point of view, and we're part of a, a much bigger scheme now, which we're trying to encourage, linking up with other landowners, the Wareham Ark project. Oh, okay. Which will link us with a, a range of other landowners in a, a landscape scale initiative. Uh, it's also right on the tourist route and nice. you know a stopping area for many people coming to the you know coming to Dorset and the West Country on holiday it's right on the confluence of the A31 and A35 and so looking at it as an opportunity for for people to get their first look at Dorset and what Dorset what Dorset is and and again that that start of their holiday maybe when they want to explore the wildlife or just stop for a break. And um, so we've got some great plans also to reuse the redundant farm buildings, the redundant farm complex that's there, most of which are um, old asbestos farm buildings, which are, we'll probably have to go. Right. But it does give us an opportunity, and we, we, we're developing a vision at the moment for what the, the former farmyard site could be, uh, seeing it very much as a, as a kind of campus of mixed community, charitable and and hopefully some commercial use that can bring money in to help us pay for the long-term management of the site so we've got some interesting thoughts about that which we'll be developing in in due course but a great opportunity to act as a you know economic regeneration hub 
in right. an area that, 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 that needs a bit of economic regeneration in yeah. some ways. So then that's really going to give back to the village as well, isn't it? Absolutely, and it create employment opportunities and recreation opportunities and, 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 uh, and more opportunities for people to be involved, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. So how are you managing the site? We're very fortunate to have uh, two dedicated staff down there, which we've been able to get funding for. Um, and they're just really getting stuck into to making the project happen and engaging the local community in doing some of the earthworks on the site and in terms of enabling wetlands to, to flourish. But what they're also doing is getting local volunteers in. And there's an awful lot of work down there for volunteers to do. Although we are rewilding, we're not abandoning it. So there's, there's a lot of work to do down there. Um, in terms of yeah, gapping up hedges and things like that and taking yeah, out fences and just in opening the site up so that it can be uh, eventually grazed um, in a very extensive way. Ah, okay. So we are looking to bring animals back onto the site at some point, and it will still produce food, but it won't be in the intensive nitrate-hungry, you know, pesticide way. It will be using extensive grazing where animals will live a, live a fuller life on the site. So we're looking at potentially um, cattle, pigs, maybe some sheep, maybe ponies that might might live on the site and help us to create this amazing mosaic of habitats that we I, we're, I think we're heading for. Yeah. Um, the staff are absolutely vital to doing that, of course, and to building relationships with the local community. And I'm um, just absolutely delighted to see how they have engaged the local community and uh, and starting to really make it a community rewilding project. I think they've also been quite um, involved with the, the children at Beerage's school. Yeah, with the local schools and I think local scout group and things have been involved as well. And you know, these are young people that will see this site develop over the next 30, 40, 50 years. So it's wonderful to get them in at the start of this project and, uh, and start to include them in, in this vision. So yeah, the more young people we get involved in nature conservation, the, the better. Yeah, fantastic. In terms of the wildlife, um, I realise that nature's taking the lead, so you can't kind of set objectives for what wildlife you want to see on the site but but what would you expect to be to be moving on that, onto that site in the next year or so um i said i think what we will see fairly quickly and start starting to see is an increase in um bird nesting opportunities for instance and i think um our first uh, survey of the site about a year and a bit ago we found i think three three skylarks for instance the right. three singing skylarks um this year there's been 17 or 18 so that's, that bioabundance coming back quite quickly is, mm. is so important. And we're seeing a whole range of, um, of plants starting to come through. And uh, where we've taken the land out of um, intensive agriculture, no fertiliser being put on the site. So we're seeing opportunistic plants start to come through in lots of different places. Um, very spectacularly this year were lots of spear thistles. Ah, okay. Yeah, so big, chunky plants that normally don't grow that big in where in, in you know when they're when they're kept down but this time up freed they were they, they they actually grew to their potential and they've been amazing things for um pollinators for bees and hoverflies and all sorts of other things uh feeding on them and and also for for a number of birds a number of um goldfinches for instance that we've seen feeding on the thistles has been absolutely amazing Wonderful. so very quickly we're seeing little incremental steps yeah. yeah, increases in bioabundance on the site, and um, so yeah, more and more of that to come. I think in the in the next couple of years. Fantastic! Such an exciting project. Thank you so much for talking to us about Wildwood Bree. <laughs> My pleasure. 
Well, as Brian mentioned, engaging the community is an essential part of the project. And back in the autumn, we joined Rob Farrington, who manages the project, and Seb Haggett, our community ranger, as they welcomed no less than 100 school children from the local primary school in Beer Regis. So let's join them as the day unfolded. Right, OK, so we're down at Walwoodbury this morning, waiting for the first buses of the kids from Beer Regis Primary School. And um, we've done quite a lot of work with the, with the school already, uh, but what we want their help with today is a project we're calling uh, the Oak Henge Project. And it's really a mark in the sand. It's, it's really kind of laying down how long-term we're thinking about this site. So the idea of the Oak Henge is that in 800 years, we want to have a living a living henge, a living circle of ancient oaks, of 800-year-old oaks. And to help get us to that stage, we're, we want to involve the school kids, get them down, collecting acorns from the site, planting them up at the school, growing them up, learning about how they, how they germinate, how they grow, and then next year probably planting them out on site. And then we'll have a countdown timer, something like 798 years left. Um, but it'll be great. I'm really looking forward to just getting them out on site, um, and getting them thinking about that passage of time. 800 years is a long time. We, we think it's about 25 generations, depending on how quickly everyone's having kids, obviously. But um, it's a long time. You know, what's changed in the last 800 years? How will it change in the next 800 years? We've got the first bus arriving now. The pupils are just getting off. So we'll head on over and we'll get them all out and hopefully see how excited they are to come and collect these 300 acorns for us uh, across the site this morning. So what we need you to do is collect some acorns, take them back to school and plant them up in pots, and then next year we'll be planting them out into a field much closer to the village. And what we hope is some of those acorns will grow into trees that will still be alive and growing in 800 years time. 800 years time. Will we still be around to see those trees in 800 years time? No. Probably not. We never know. Probably not. And I think that it will be your great, 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 great grandchildren who will be here in 800 years time. 25 greats so a long 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 time so that's who we're doing this for okay so let's go and try and find so where do you think might be a good place to start finding acorns here no no by the oak trees by the oak trees yes of course does everyone know what an oak tree looks like yeah it looks like that tree over there what are you going to do you've got to check so there aren't any little holes in where insects have laid their laid their eggs or larva in there. They won't grow into trees. Or if someone's trodden on it and it's squashed, that's probably not going, going to grow into a tree. Or if it's all soft, that won't probably go into a tree. So we need to find ones that are all smooth and hard. Okay. Yeah, you can fill that one. So and I think the, the trees that are growing with lots of light on the edge of the wood. They've got lots and lots of energy, so they will make very big acorns. The oak trees in the wood, which don't have as much light, they will be growing only very, very small acorns, but they'll still have a chance to grow into a tree, okay? 
So they don't have to be big, they just have to look nice and healthy and hard. Community engagement is a very large part of the project here at Wild Woodbury. We've been contacting local groups and wider groups around Dorset to connect them as much as possible with the work we're doing and enthuse them about what's going on and hopefully encourage them to do similar things themselves. The Beer Readers Primary School was an obvious target for one of the first people to connect. They're only about a five minute walk away from the site and engaging with young people you know, from reception up to year six is so important at the moment to, to teach them about the natural world and hopefully engage with them so they can continue to learn uh, as they grow. Yeah, wow, that's brilliant. That, that is, a, is, is a wasp gall. So a wasp, not, not the type that will come and see you at a picnic, but there are lots and lots of different types of wasps. And a wasp has laid its egg in that acorn. And the acorn, in response, has gone, ah, what's happened? And just made this amazing growth called a gall. And inside there is a baby wasp. And when it's, when it's eaten all the inside, it will pop up next year as an adult wasp. How amazing is that? I previously spent some time with the school, uh, both in the classroom, teaching them uh, how to ID certain things like skulls and feathers and birds' nests, and then also out in the field where we did a bug hunt, learning about all the invertebrates that are using the site, growing on the thistles that have appeared in this first year. So having them out and en engaging them in this 800-year project shows the longevity of what we're doing to hopefully keep this partnership uh, for many years to come. My name's Miss David and I'm a class teacher at Beer Regis School um, and I teach reception but I'm with the year two class today. Because <laughs> it's coming up to end of half time it's really nice for them just to get out and do something slightly different, not staying indoors, they're getting out and kind of experience, also experiencing kind of what's around our school as well, so the local area and it's really nice for them to see that this is here around us as well. So yeah, it's really lovely for them. How many acorns have you found, Anna? Three. You found three acorns? Yes. I found and what are we going to do with five. these when we get back? We're going to plant them. We are. Oh, look. This one them. has a little head. And these, these two heads have fun. Yeah, so you've got two without and one with. And that equals three. And that equals three. Good math, Anna. So the reason we, we would are planting because most of the site we're relying on natural regeneration we've got lots of seed sources we've got lots of species most species we'd expect in the field closest to the village is the one place we don't really have that that big seed source species will come back but it might take quite a long time so in that area and just in that area we're giving we're giving it a helping hand by just planting planting these oaks and planting a few other species that are just missing from the landscape the 800-year Oakhenge project at Wild Woodbury is, is to really show that these projects are long-term. You know, we, we haven't got five-year, ten-year management plans. We are looking hundreds of years in advance. And by having planting out you know, two, three hundred acorns and saying we, they're going to be there to create this Oakhenge in 800 years' time when we have eight veteran oak trees, shows the timescale that we're going for. To be able to have successive generations of people in the village mark off a, a big t countdown clock, can really engage them in what we're doing. And of course, the primary school children are going to be planting out these trees so they can come back in you know, 50, 60, 70 years' time and see the beginnings of this Oak Henge that they started you know, when, when they were in primary school.
good one. I got baby April. Such a joy to hear the excitement of the children there, learning outdoors, immersed in nature and being part of a vision that will leave a legacy for generations to come. Thank you to all who have helped make today's podcast. For those of you listening, we hope you've enjoyed it and you'll join us again for another episode of Wildlife Matters. If you'd like to get involved with the work we do to protect nature in Dorset, then why not consider becoming a volunteer? You might long to do more outdoors, connecting with nature. You might want to learn a new skill or meet new people. There are lots of reasons people volunteer with us, so why not find out what opportunities are available near you by heading to our website. Go to dorsetwildlifetrust.org.uk Together, we can make a wilder Dorset. <laughs>